Grace, we talk as though we understand the term. The bank gives us a grace period. The CD politician falls from grace. Musicians speak of a grace note. We describe an actress as gracious, a dancer as graceful. We use the words for hospitals, for baby girls, for kings. And we say grace for our pre-meal prayers. We talk as though we know what the word grace means, especially at church. Grace graces the songs that we sing and the Bible verses we read. Preachers explain it. Hymns proclaim it. Seminaries teach it. But do we really understand it? Perhaps we've settled for something poorer, something smaller, something less, only a surface understanding. Grace politely occupies a phrase in a hymn and fits nicely on a church sign. But does it ever cause us trouble or demand our response? When asked, do you understand grace? We'd probably all say yes. But do we? But here there isn't even a greater question. Have we been changed by grace? Have we been shaped by grace? Have we been strengthened by grace? Emboldened by grace? Softened by grace? Grace is a voice that calls to us to change. And then gives us the power to pull it off. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about and exploring what God's word tells us about grace. We're going to look at the creator of grace and the model of grace and what he has to teach us about this most central theme of our faith. Let's take a moment now and just listen as I'm just going to read off some powerful verses about grace that God has given to us in his scriptures. John 1 14 and 16, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Acts 20, 32, and I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace towards me, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, it may abound in every good work. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he, that, he, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in our wisdom and insight. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As each has received a gift, use it therefore to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. But grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Almost every one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, begins with the word of grace and ends with the word of grace. Take that first letter Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians as an example. The letter starts in 1 Corinthians 1-3 saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the letter ends in 1 Corinthians 16-23 saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace. What an amazing word. What an amazing word because it teaches us such amazing truths about our God. Are you ready to go into the deep end of God's grace and immerse ourselves in the truth of God's wonderful, matchless, marvelous grace? Let's take a moment here this morning and try to put a textbook definition on this multicolored prism of truth. The simple definition of grace is God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. Sometimes it's easy to get grace and mercy confused. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. See, grace has nothing to do with us at all. God's grace can never be earned. Grace is always a proactive gift from God alone. Grace is not something we get. It's something that gets us. See, it's not just that we don't deserve God's grace. God's grace is not like showing kindness to a stranger. Showing kindness to a stranger is unmerited favor. But God's grace is much bigger, much stronger, much bolder than that. God's grace is like showing kindness to your enemy. God's grace is showing kindness to a sinner. God's grace is showing kindness to someone who is in rebellion, who looks at your gift and says, no, over and over and over again, I choose my own way. God's grace just keeps offering the gift over and over and over again. There are two great acronyms for grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Ephesians 1 talks about having the riches of God's grace lavished upon us through the redemption that we have received through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
God's grace gave us his very best, his son and our savior. The next acronym is just like it, except one word has been changed. G-R-A-C-E, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Grace is a word with many different colors and hues, but this is an important emphasis. Follow along here now as I read from Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Romans 5, 15 through 21. In this passage, Paul is comparing and contrasting Adam. Adam as the first man who brought sin to all of us, and Jesus as the chosen man who conquers sin with grace and gives us the free gift of righteousness. It said, for if many died through one man's trespass, that is Adam, how much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? And the free gift is not like the result of Adam's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigning through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Powerful verses, powerful truth, the power of grace. Sin reigns in death, but it's the power of grace that destroys death. It's the power of grace through God's righteousness that leads us to eternal life. Though sin reigns in death, grace overpowers sin and reigns in life. When we come to Christ in salvation, grace moves us from death to life. From lost to found, from unrighteousness to righteousness, Jesus extends his finished work of salvation to us through grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. We experience God's riches and eternal blessings through the grace of Christ. We experience God's righteousness leading to eternal life through the grace of Christ. God's grace is not something we get. It is something that gets us. Has grace gotten you? Let's take a moment and look at the powerful and wonderful grace of Jesus at work in the account of Saul's conversion to Christ in Acts chapter 9. Remember Saul, after his conversion to Christ, starts using his Greek name, Paul. The story we're about to look at is the conversion account of the Apostle Paul. The very man that God used to spearhead the spread of the gospel and to write 13 of our 27 books of our New Testament. First, we're going to look at how God's grace overpowered Paul's past. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was there without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Before the great hero of the faith, Paul, was doing great things for God, he was working his hardest to persecute and destroy any and all of the followers of the way who followed the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. So we're first introduced to Saul at the end of chapter 7 at the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first official leaders of the church in Jerusalem, chosen as a deacon. He's described in Acts 6-5 as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. But the Jewish leaders falsely accused him of speaking against Moses, against the law, against the temple. He is seized and by a stirred-up mob and taken before the Jewish high council. When asked by the council about these false accusations, he goes into this great speech and history lesson, proving his full respect for Moses and the law and the temple. But his speech culminates essentially saying that the teachings of Moses, the teachings of the law, the truth of the temple point to Jesus Christ. The very Jesus that this council had betrayed and screamed for his death. Well, the council and the Jewish crowd are enraged by Stephen's defense and they drag Stephen out of the city and stone him to death. Acts 7.58 says, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul watched over the garments of those who were stoned to death, the very first martyr of the church. Saul was there. He heard it all. He watched it all. He participated in Stephen's death. To make sure that we got the full picture of Saul's intention and motives, Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And Saul was just getting started. Listen to the rest of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, And then there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a one-man wrecking crew with a single focus. Destroy the church. It must be stopped at all costs. When Saul had ravaged and persecuted, imprisoned and scattered the believers in Jerusalem, he wanted to take his crusade against Christ on the road. Remember those words in Acts chapter 9, where it says Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to 
to the synagogue of Damascus so he could do the same thing in Damascus that he was doing right there in Jerusalem. This is the man. This Saul is the man that Jesus appears to on the Damascus road. This is the man that Jesus says in Acts 9.15. He's the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This persecutor, this murderer, this one whose great passion, passion was to ravage and destroy the church. This is the one that's a chosen instrument of Jesus. This is the one Jesus comes to with overpowering grace. And calls him to his own. See, God's grace overpowers our past. God's grace overcomes our past. God's grace triumphs over our past. No one in this room is as wicked and as evil of a past as Paul had. Did God reject him? Did God say, you went too far. You are disqualified, Saul. Did God say, you're hopeless? You can't be any good to me. Jesus knew Saul's past. He knew all that Saul had done. And Jesus said, I choose you, Saul. I choose you. I accept you. I have come to give you my grace. Now, we all have a past. We, we all have done things that bring us heartbreak and shame. We all have done things that separate us from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does God say to us? Does God reject us? Does God say, sorry, no grace for you, no love for you, you went too far? Or does Jesus extend his nail-pierced arms and say to you, I choose you. I choose you. I accept you. I came for you. I love you. I died for you. Here is my grace. I give it to you. God's grace overpowers our past and offers us real purpose in the present and true hope for the future. Well, secondly, God's grace overpowers our fears. God's grace overpowered Ananias' fear. There in verses 10 through 17 in Acts chapter 9. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Strayed at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay, hand, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus showed his grace to Ananias, helping him overcome his fear. So, so Ananias has this vision. Go to Saul and heal him. 
God couldn't have been any clearer in the vision. He literally gives him street directions to the house. So what does Ananias do? Does he jump right up, following the clear direction of the Lord, and go to Saul? No, he doesn't. Can't you kind of picture him looking around and saying to himself, uh, did I really hear that? I think I had one too many falafels last night. Did Jesus just tell me to go to Saul of Tarsus? Oh, I know. He, he, he got the name wrong. Maybe he meant a different Saul. He couldn't have meant that ravaging, church-persecuting Saul guy. I must have misunderstood. Obviously, Jesus wouldn't want me to do something so crazy, so scary, so hard, so challenging as to go to Saul. Doesn't Jesus know that I'd be putting my life at risk if I go see him? So he asked Jesus for clarification. He says, Lord, I've heard about this evil man and that he's come to bind up believers and to take them to prison. Don't you know that? Jesus then again tells him, go. And he reassures Ananias in his fears that he's working out his plan in his way. Jesus didn't respond to Ananias' fear with judgment or condemnation. No, Jesus responded to Ananias' fear with grace. Jesus responded to Ananias' fear with love and reassurance. He didn't tell him everything would be all right. He didn't tell him that nothing bad is going to happen to you. He told him, I have a plan, and I'm working out my plan, and when you do what I tell you to do, you can trust me. I have chosen Saul and Ananias. I have chosen you to go heal Saul. Trust me. God's grace overpowers our fears. What fears are we facing today? What anxieties and worries are weighing on your heart today? What is happening in your life that makes you wonder if God is really watching out for you? Our Evelyn stood up on Wednesday, turned, broke her hip. Our missionary, Dan Stoner, thought he was having a bad reaction to a malaria shot. Three days later, he's on a hurried flight from France to get to the emergency room at the Cleveland Clinic with cancer. Car accidents and broken dreams and lost relationships and fears and loneliness and depression. Is there grace for me in times like that? Does Jesus extend his grace to me when life doesn't make sense? Listen, yes. Yes, he does. Grace is that powerful. Grace is that intimate. Does he say everything will be all right? Does he say nothing bad is going to happen to you? No, he doesn't say that. He says, trust me. I am trustworthy. I know what I'm doing, and my grace is sufficient for you. Today, if you're one of those questioning times of your life, if you're in a time of fear, or you're in a time of loss, turn to Jesus and listen to him. Because Jesus is saying to you today, trust me, I know what I'm doing. My grace is sufficient for you. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches of Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again.
God's grace overpowers our fears. Well, next we see that God's grace overpowers Saul's religion. Ananias has obeyed God and he was used by God to heal Paul. We continue this story in verse 18. It says, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. The power of grace from Pharisee and teacher in the law to preacher and defender of Jesus. You see, Saul wasn't just some thug who was trying to persecute followers of Christ. No, Saul was one of the leading religious leaders of his day. Saul describes himself in Philippians 3, 5-6 through 6, saying, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Acts also describes Saul's religious past. Saul says in Acts 23.6 that not only was he a Pharisee, but he was the son of a Pharisee. Saul came from a devout religious family. In Acts 22.3, Saul says of himself, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Sicilia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Saul must have been an exceptional student, both in his commitment and in his knowledge to learn from Gamaliel. Gamaliel, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, Saul learned from the very best. Few people in Saul's day could claim to be as devout and as religious as Saul. Few people in our day could claim to be as devout and religious as Saul. There was Saul so totally wrapped up in this fervent religious activity, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was so committed that he was willing in his religious fervor to persecute those who didn't believe the way he did. He was literally a picture of complete and perfect religion. And he was as far from God as anyone could be. He thought he was serving God with his religious devotion, but instead he was actually working against God. You see, religion is man's attempt to reach God. Religion is man's attempt to bring God down to him. Religion is a work of man. On that Damascus road, Jesus said to Saul, I am real. I am the one who does the choosing. It's not about you getting to me. It's about me coming to you. God's grace is not something we get. It's something that gets us. Christianity, in its essence, is not a religion. It's not man reaching out for God. Christianity, in its essence, is a relationship. It is God reaching out to man. Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am 
Jesus. To be a follower of Christ is to have an encounter with Jesus. To be a follower of Christ is to have met Jesus and allowed that meeting to change your whole life. To be a follower of Jesus means that you've entered into a relationship with God. How tragic to climb the ladder of your life only to find out that your ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Saul was climbing this ladder of religion, but Jesus' overpowering grace rescued him. Is Christianity your religion? Is it what you're doing for Jesus? Or is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, and it's about what he is doing in you? Have you had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? Or are you climbing your own ladder of religious activity? Grace overpowered Saul's religion, and he was transformed into a chosen instrument of God. Well, the story is told about a comparative religions conference. The wise and the scholarly were in this spirited debate about what makes Christianity unique. Someone suggested that Christianity, apart from all other religions, was the concept of the incarnation. The idea that God took on human form in Jesus. But someone quickly said, well, actually, other faiths believe that their God can appear in human form. Well, then another suggestion was offered. What about the resurrection? The belief that death is not the final word. But then someone slowly shook his head. Other religions have accounts of people returning from the dead. Then as the story is told, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. Tweed jacket, arm full of papers, a little early for his presentation. He sat down and took in the conversation, which had now evolved into this fierce debate. Finally, during a lull, he spoke, saying, what's all this rumpus about? Everyone turned in his direction, trying to explain themselves. And then they finally said, we're debating what's unique about Christianity. Oh, that's easy, answered Lewis. It's grace. The room fell silent. Lewis continued that Christianity uniquely claims that God's love comes free of charge. No strings attached. No other religion makes that claim. At the end of the discussion, everyone concluded that Lewis had a point. Only Christianity dares to proclaim that God's love is unconditionally. Unconditional love that is made manifest by grace. Grace is all about God, about God freely given to us as gifts of righteousness, forgiveness, love, and mercy. Grace, it's not about something we get. It's something that gets us. Grace, more than we deserve, greater than we imagine. Has God's grace gotten you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you at this moment, right now, soaked in your word. We come to you at this moment right now, asking you to take that word through the power of your Holy Spirit and move within us, challenge us, convict us, comfort us, encourage us. Lord, we want this day not to have come to church, but we want this day to have met with Jesus Christ through his word have worshipped him, and have changed and come to know him even better. Father, we come in need of grace. Oh, thank you so much.
for Jesus and his grace. In Jesus' name, amen.